Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Amen. Good morning. Hey, good to see y'all. My name is Mike. If you are new to our community, welcome uh, to Journey Church, uh, whether you meant to be here or not, you are here. And we're glad you're here. And uh, just a couple of things I want to let you know about. If you're new to our community, the best thing you can do is go to journeytn.com to find out more about us and find out things that are coming up. We, every week, um, and we'll get to this later in our service, every week we take time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And there are stations around the room uh, that you can look at and, and we'll be directed to later on uh, towards the end of our service. But we come um, and, and engage in that ancient practice to be received by God, to almost you know, symbolically share a meal with him. No matter where we're coming from, no matter what we're thinking, no matter if our doubts are taken care of or all of our sins are you know, put together, uh, we come as people from wildly divergent points of view and stations in life and are received equally at the Lord's table. And as a community, we try to practice that same posture together. The way that God treats us is the way that we want to treat each other. And so we engage in a communal practice once a month called The Table. And it's where we host each other um, for just a simple meal and conversation. No particular agenda. There's no secret Bible study coming at you. Um, it's literally a meal and conversation with people who are not like each other and who often don't know each other. And I know for some introverts, it's a nightmare. And that's why we have very small groups that do this as we meet together. But we absolutely think it's one of the most central ways that we can embody the way of Jesus. And these days, when so many people are polarized and divided and labeling and demonizing, to simply share a meal together, to listen, to provoke curiosity and hospitality, we think is super important. So next Sunday night, uh, we have a whole crew of people that opens their homes, and we invite you to come. In the same way that we come to the Lord's table, we invite you once a month to come to our table. And so not only is it a great way to get to know the community, but it's really the most powerful way we sort of embody the posture that we're to have towards each other. So you can sign up uh, on our website, journeytn.com. Now, Today, if you're new, you're catching us in the middle of a series of conversations around the big scary book of Revelation. Um, the conversations that we're having build on each other, and so they're not little self-contained units. Um, as much as we'd love them to be, there's actually assumptions that we argue for several weeks ago that impacts how it is that we understand the book. And so if you're interested, there are all sorts of great YouTube videos of... Um, <laughs> of previous sermons. I know, I know. I, can you imagine the kind of person who would do that? Um, so uh, anyway, I invite you into that. But today we're hitting Revelation chapter 6. Now, a couple things uh, to know about our community. First, we love, love, love questions. So we have several vehicles through which you can ask questions as we go through this series. There is a text line 
um, because we love the introverts among us, that you could text in questions, and Kevin actually responds to those. We'll, we'll have a time in a little bit where we'll respond to as many as we can get to, and then Kevin, bless his heart, uh, responds to those. Um, Kevin also hosts a, a small group dialogue over some of the stuff that we talk about um, starting, what, 1030, 1045-ish? 1050, to be exactly precise. In the lounge, out those doors, to the left, look for this handsome fellow, and you have found the conversation. And then we, we also host a podcast, and uh, the podcast is spurred on by the questions that are being asked. So anyway, all of that is to say, if, if something hits and provokes, uh, there are ways in which we encourage you to, to dive in further uh, into the conversation. Today, let's go to Revelation chapter 6, ladies and gentlemen. Last week, we met the Emperor Domitian, and we saw in Revelation 5 how the image of the one who sits on the throne holding a scroll undercut sort of some of the propaganda around him. Today, we're going to open the scroll, and we're going to get into from 6 to 16. We're going to take three weeks and we're not going to look at 6 through 16 it, chronologically. We're going to look at 6 through 16 uh, thematically. So today we're going to meet the day of the Lord. Next week we're going to meet the dragon and the beast. The week after we're going to meet Babylon. And hopefully after the third week, those, that section of Revelation will begin to make at least a little sense about how it is that we approach it. So Revelation chapter 6, we begin, The Lamb who has been slain is now worthy to open the scroll. First one, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. I remember scrolls back in the day were sealed, particularly imperial scrolls were sealed seven times. There were bits of wax over the knots that, that put the scroll together. So we haven't even opened the scroll yet. This is just the significance of breaking the seals. Uh, then I heard one of the four living creatures that we met um, in chapter one say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror belt, belt, bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. That sounds like a, just a regular normal day in human history. Would you agree? To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. We're talking about inflation, so we are living in the end times right now. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, if you're interested in four horsemen, go to, we're not going to, but Zechariah 1 has four horsemen and four colored horses. So it's an image that's not brand new to the writers. This was an image that's taken from Zechariah and adapted. Now, we've gone through four seals. We're at the fifth seal in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are the martyrs that we've met previously. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? How long, God, until you bring justice, in other words? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been, which is kind of a weird answer. Would you agree? It's the fifth seal. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, verse 12. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. We all know what that looks like. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, we fall into the everyone else category, both slave and free hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great what? The great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I know, I know, and it gets worse from here, <laughs> right? This, was, well, this is one of the easier chapters. All right, so we meet in the sixth seal, we meet something called the day. Now, again, because we're not, you know, traditionally really Old Testament um, literate, that phrase, the day, and, and some of the signs around the day, like you know the moon turning uh, to blood and the sky being darkened, these are all Old Testament references to a day that's literally called the day of the Lord. So we're gonna take a 10-minute segue into the Old Testament, learning about the day of the Lord, and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna see what's going on. Make sense? Day of the Lord, ladies and gentlemen. Now. The phrase, the day, starts in the book of Exodus. When the children of Israel are enslaved, how does God deliver them? How does he deliver them? What does he use? He uses lots of things, but he uses plagues. Right? There are ten plagues that God uses to deliver his people. And what's fascinating is each of those plagues targets a different Egyptian deity. So literally, God will say, I'm declaring war on the gods of Egypt, and that's what he means. So they worship frogs, and there was a god of flies, and there was a god of livestock, and there was a god, that, that literally, the plague of the firstborn. I mean, that is the direct uh, attack on Pharaoh. All that's interesting background, but I want you to notice that God's act of delivering his people out of an incredibly oppressive nation it's a story we call the Exodus story, but that story gets referred to as the day. So the plagues, I just want to remind you, because we're going to meet these plagues in Revelation. Shocking. Here are the plagues on Egypt, water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, pestilence or disease over the livestock, sores or boils, hail, 
locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn. Sounds like a lot of fun. It is these plagues that provoke Pharaoh to this kind of flip-flopping attitude about letting the people go or not letting the people go. Ten times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and ten times it says that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the big point of the plagues was to soften Pharaoh's heart to allow the nation of Israel to go and worship their God, all right? Now, after this event happens, it's memorialized in an event called Passover. We met this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the slain lamb, right? They are to take a lamb um, and anoint the doorposts of their homes, and this angel of death will pass over, and this gets memorialized into a yearly traditional festival called Passover. Now, Exodus 3, then Moses said to the people, commemorate this what? The day you came out of Egypt and the land of slavery because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast, and that's a whole other sort of picture of symbolism. But here, this day is just referred to as the day. Celebrate this day. And what are they celebrating? That the, the corrupt and immoral nation of Egypt was brought low. And that in the bringing of Egypt low, they were set free. And they were set free to go worship their God. Those three elements become part of the day as people, the prophets, begin to talk about what's going to happen in the future. Make sense so far? So in Exodus 14, we get the same idea that what? The Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. <laughs> Yay, let's celebrate that. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, next slide. This is a definition that comes from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, and it's, it's great per his usual genius. The day of the Lord, that exodus deliverance became an archetype for something that was going to happen in the future, right? And so that day became the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord was when God would be at work in human history to confront collective human evil, not individual evil, but collective national evil, liberate his people from oppression, and assert his rule over all creation. This is what happened in the Exodus. Pharaoh and the unjust system of Egypt was judged. In that judgment, the oppressed people were set free, and then the power of Yahweh was shown over the gods of Egypt. Do you see all of that combining? Yes? Beautiful. I know this is super awesome, but it, this is actually what's happening in Revelation over and over and over and over and over. Now, here's one very important thing you've got to know. All right, look at me for a second. The day of the Lord is used in two different ways. All right, this archetype image from Exodus is now used in two different ways. We will read about the small d, day of the Lord, when God judges other oppressive nations in the Bible. But we will also read about an ultimate, like capital D, day of the Lord, where God judges all of evil entirely and finally. 
It gets confusing though because the same set of images is used for each. So in Isaiah, God is gonna condemn the nation of Babylon with something called the day of the Lord. And I want you to notice the language that's used to describe the downfall of Babylon to Persia. Go ahead and fire up Isaiah 2. The day of the Lord arrives upon a nation when that nation gets so puffed up so as to exalt itself as to claim divinity. So the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, for they will be humbled. Next. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks. We met that in, uh, in Revelation 6. We'll go see that text in, in a little bit. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Next. Isaiah 13, the army of God will come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, and the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. What country are we talking about? Remember, Babylon. Will, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light, the rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and humble, the pride of the ruthless. Now, what's God talking, is there, yeah. I will make people scarcer than pure gold. Next. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place as the wrath of the, uh, from the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Now, later on in Isaiah 13, just remember, what are we talking about? We're talking about a nation, Babylon, that had taken the southern kingdom of Israel captive, and Babylon, the nation, is about to be overrun by Persia, another nation. Okay, are you with me? And notice the language that's being used. The stars will not show their light and, and you know, the moon will not show its light and the earth itself will tremble and the heavens will be unleashed. But they're using that image to talk about what? One nation conquering another nation, correct? I need feedback, folks. Is this making sense? So just as a reminder, what we're talking about, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. So remember, the day of the Lord is the day when God will judge unchecked human evil on a national scale and liberate his people and assert his authority over the earth. So it happens with Egypt. Now the writer is saying it's going to happen with Babylon. Babylon has become another Egypt, and they too will experience the day of the Lord. And notice how the writers talk about it. They've become arrogant and self-exaltant, and so God will bring them low. And how will God bring them low? 
by having another nation conquer them, but notice how that's talked about. That's talked about like the world is ending. Are you with me? Now, another, one more example of the day of the Lord before we go back to Revelation. In Joel, Billy's favorite book, I know. Joel is prophesying a day of the Lord, and we're going to look more at this in a couple of weeks, against Israel. One of the real surprises of the Old Testament story is that Egypt becomes Babylon, but then Israel, the oppressed, become the oppressors. And Joel actually prophesies a day of the Lord against them. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for a day, the day of the Lord is coming. Now remember, the day of the Lord's used in two different ways. One way it's used is just to describe the rise and fall of nations that occur in human history. And another way it's used is to describe the ultimate final day of justice when God gets rid of all human evil. Here, it's being used in a way that describes an historical instance of Israel being overthrown by another nation. So notice the language. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming and is close at hand. Next, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times or or nor ever will be in ages to come. Next, before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened. There's that image again. And the stars no longer shine. There's that image again. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and the mighty, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it. So what are we talking about here? Historically, what are we talking about here? The overthrow of what nation? Israel, right? Notice how real historical events are described. They're described with heavenly cosmic imagery, right? Do you see that? All right, so... When we get to Revelation 6, and I want to read that last little bit of it, the sixth seal. Go ahead and put it up there if you would. Revelation, what is that? Yeah, there it is. I watched. This is the sixth seal. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. 
For the great day, when you hear that, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's straight from Joel. In fact, it's, another, it's a question from Micah, if you'd put that up, up there. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now, are you with me so far? When we read Revelation 6, we're tempted to think this is a literal description of something that's going to happen in the future. And I want to suggest it's an archetypical description of something that's happened many times throughout the biblical story and is happening again when John is writing. All right? Now, this is the first series of seven we meet in Revelation 6 through 16. There are three sevens that we meet, seven waves, or three waves of seven judgments. So we've met seals. Now the scroll is open, and now the contents of the scroll. Now we meet seven trumpets. The seventh, oh yeah, go ahead and put that up. Revelation 7. This is the seventh seal. After this, saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Oh, no, go ahead and skip. Go to Revelation 8. That's the last seal. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And that is how the seventh seal ends, with that exact phrase. Now, notice the seventh seal has embedded in it the next wave of sevens, the seven trumpets. So let's meet the seven trumpets. I mean, I literally just sat down and went through the seven trumpets, and here they are. The first one, hail, water into blood, bitter water, darkness, locusts, four angels of death that represent different plagues, Then there's an interlude where the writer tells us that no one has repented because of these judgments. Then we meet a little scroll, and then we have something called the day of the Lord. That's the sixth seal, and then there's one more, which is the introduction of trumpets. Now, have we met these plagues before? Where? Egypt. So, if you're somebody who's been immersed in the Old Testament and you read this and you're reading about the great day of God's judgment, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about Iraq and Saddam Hussein? Or are you thinking about the great day of the Lord that began against Egypt with plagues that sound a lot like those plagues? Are you with me? And then this series of judgment ends, go ahead and put that up, God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple there was the Ark of the Covenant, and there became flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. Now that's exactly the same way the last set 
of, um, of judgments ended with that same exact phrase. Are you, are you with me? Oh, sorry, it's, it feels fuzzy coming out. I'm so excited about it that it's like, I, I just have to make sure you see this. All right. Then we have an interlude from 12 to 14 that we're going to look at next week where we meet the dragon and the two beasts. It's going to be glorious next week, ladies and gentlemen. Then in 16, we're back to seven more judgments. These are bowls. Tell me if these look familiar. Sores, seawater into blood, fresh water into blood, sun scorch, darkness, frogs. They're actually demon frogs. There's an interlude that again says no one's repented from these. And that becomes so important because there is a, there is a time in Revelation where the nations repent, but it's not after the cycles of judgment. It's because of the witness of the church. Ooh, Then we have another instance of what? The day of the Lord, and then notice how this cycle ends. There came, this is in 16, there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth, so tremendous was the quake. All right, now, Joe, unleash the chart. I know, I get paid your tithe dollars. <laughs> Go to the creation of dynamic graphic art. <laughs> now I want you to notice something, all right? Some people think, and there are lots of smart people who think that what this is is a linear sequential like narration of judgments that get increasingly intense as we go on. And a lot of us are familiar with that view. I want to suggest that that's the wrong way to understand this cycle of judgments. For a number of reasons. One, the plagues have bear a striking similarity to the plagues in Exodus. Two, the reference to the day of the Lord clues us into an Old Testament motif that happened over and over, not just once. Three, each cycle of seven ends the same way with peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So I think the writer is using images from the exodus, from exile, and from the flood to convey that God is doing to Rome what he has done to previous iterations of arrogant nations before. Now, you don't have to buy this, but I want to go through the chart. All right, so in the right-hand column, there are the Exodus plagues that we've looked at. Left-hand column are the seals, four horsemen that, that have some sort of tie into Zechariah, martyrs, which is interesting, in the fifth seal, and then we meet the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath. And the question is asked, who can stand? And the answer that John's going to give us is two chapters where we meet 144,000 people who stand before the Lord because they've been sealed by him. Then we go to the trumpet, and then Revelation, that cycle ends with peals of lightning, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then we meet trumpets. 
hail, water into blood, bitter water, darkness, locusts, four, four angels of death. That, that brings seven plagues, interestingly enough. There's no repentance that's brought about in the nations. We meet the day of the Lord again, and the series ends with the same idea of peals of thunder, an earthquake, flashes of lightning. Then we meet bowls a couple of chapters later. Sores, seawater into blood, fresh water into blood, sun scorched, darkness, frogs, demon frogs. Still no repentance. There is the day of the Lord, and it ends in 16 with the same reference to peals of, light, of lightning. It's peals of thunder, I know. I keep messing that up. Flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So what I want to suggest is this whole big hairy set of revelation that is so scary and intimidating is God reenacting against yet another nation. What he's enacted against Egypt, Babylon, and Israel. And that if you were immersed in the Old Testament, you would see all of this imagery now going to be applied to the nation of Rome. And we know it's the nation of Rome because in two weeks from now, we're going to meet Babylon. And the John says, Babylon is Rome. The John. John says. All right. Whew. Any questions on this? I know, right? Check. Hello, Kevin. Hey, the quick one. Uh, why the number seven? Why is seven so important on this? Oh, such a good question. So, um, in apocalyptic literature, numbers and colors take on big significance. If you do study of twelves and threes and three and a halfs and sixes and sevens, you see they're used very consistently throughout uh, the book of Revelation. Seven um, is a reference back to creation. So seven days, after seven days, God rested because creation was complete. Right? So seven began to take on a connotation of wholeness, completion, fullness. So seven churches means it was written for all the churches. Seven plagues means there are more plagues, but th this is the fullness and finality of God's wrath. Great question. Anything else you want to talk about real quick? Um, what about the, was it the sixth seal, the power over a quarter of the earth, or a fourth? Yeah. Right? And then wasn't in the next chapter, it talks about a third of... Totally. Right, so how do we... Did that ever happen? That's, that's the thing. I've heard of this in terms of end times. Like, oh, half of the population is going to be killed. Right. So how do we reconcile? With Great question. So if I said my Buckeyes killed Penn State. Hey. <laughs> how are you to understand that reference? Right. It's hyperbolic. So... I could show you a thousand examples from Ezekiel or from other apocalyptic writing where that same imagery is used to describe not literal numbers, but incredible amounts of devastation. 
So what I was trying to do when we were looking at Isaiah and Joel was to show you the kind of language, it's end of the world language that's being used to the destruction of one nation. So my answer would be, I don't take any of that as that's really what's happening. I take it because we'll see it in Revelation 18 and 19, that this whole cycle is gonna be levied against Rome for its injustice and they oppressed Like the nation of Israel against Egypt, the oppressed who were the martyrs will be vindicated in the great exodus that God will bring against the gods of Rome, liberating his people. And so a third of the world, and there was this wormwood that came down. And if you're you're uh, you're immersed in the Old Testament, you're not thinking, oh, those are literal signs. You're thinking, oh, these are the plagues of Egypt reconfigured, right? Or at least that's my take on it. So I don't read as a third of the thing and that I don't, I don't see it that way. Because I think all of that imagery is meant to remind us of previous events that, have, that are replaying throughout the scripture. So that's a great question. Can yes, I sir. Sorry, I have a follow-up to that. So of course. So then where's the line on where you read Revelation and know that it's like the literal verses, the imagery and knowing like that it's a callback to the old testament because like hermeneutically we read things like the time that it's written for the people and things like that so how do you know the difference of like the literal like you were saying versus reading like the fourth and the third yes oh that's so good great question part of the answer is a conversation we had several weeks ago about what revelation is so the big the big argument against my interpretation is well we're supposed to read the Bible literally. And I totally disagree that we're supposed to, to, to read the Bible literally because the Bible itself says there are places you're not supposed to take it literally. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth. No one thinks that God has eyes, right? Greet each other with a holy kiss. That was literal for them, but I don't see many of us doing that, thankfully, today. I think there are, there are so, so, the, the short answer to a very, very good and complicated question is that Revelation presents itself to us as a circular letter, which would have made sense to the original audience, as a piece of apocalyptic literature where there are certain conventions that are used that are true of all apocalyptic literature that we have from that era. One of those is the highly symbolic use of colors and numbers and imagery. And then thirdly, it's a prophetic, it's a prophecy in the Old Testament tradition of prophecy. So in Isaiah and in Joel, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah is another example. Imagery is being used, cosmic imagery is being used to describe historical real world events. And the imagery is so out of proportion to what's happening on earth that you begin to read, to understand that what the author is trying to tell you is that this geopolitical event that happened in history is gonna have repercussions throughout the rest of the historical narrative that aren't tied to the specific details of whatever symbolism has been used. So, I take, I take it, number one, that the original audience would have understood this. Seven times the reader of this letter or the hearer of this letter is blessed. I take it number two, when we get to these passages that almost all of this is to be taken symbolically, not because we don't take the Bible seriously, but because we do. 
And this is channeling kinds of literature that are highly symbolic. And the reason it's really hard for us to get our minds around is because most of it's from the Old Testament. And not just any parts of the Old Testament, but the parts that we don't normally read when we're reading through the Old Testament. You know what I mean? Does that at least begin? So do I think there is a literal return of Jesus coming? Yep. And is there a final day of the Lord coming? You bet. Right, we meet that in 19 and 20. And then we meet a new creation in 21 and 22. So I think there are parts of the book absolutely that are still future. Yes. Okay, we got a follow up to a follow up. <laughs> um, we see the day of the Lord over and over and over. And I know in Exodus it was the release of his people, but what does it mean when you see it over and over, but he's not returned. Can you go into detail about what each day of the Lord is for each of the seven? Yes, 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 yes. Great question. All right, Stephanie, are you, why are you looking at your watch like this? Oh, somebody texted you? All right, hold on. Siri, text Stephanie, Skipper. Okay, great question. What was it? <laughs> so, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is associated with three elements, like we talked about. One is the judgment of a corrupt nation and its oppressive practices. Two, the vindication of God's people. Except when God's people are the oppressors. And then thirdly, the demonstration of Yahweh's authority over the earth, all right? Now that cycle, we're gonna argue in two weeks, has happened several times. It's happened to Egypt, happened to Babylon, happened, uh, happened to Israel, and in John's day, it's gonna happen to Rome. And then there's a whole bunch of questions that still remain like, does it still happen today? And what's the future happening going to look like? So when we get there, I think we'll have a better understanding of how this is being used in the meantime. So the next three weeks fit together and then get us to um, 19 and 20, where there is a final day of the Lord. Also, Jesus actually describes his coming in the book of Matthew as judgment on the city of Jerusalem. So, so there are some who think God has come back when, when, when Jesus judged the, nation, or the city of Jerusalem when it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and he will come back again to judge the nations. But his coming isn't the narrow definition of what we understand his coming to be according to some traditional interpretations of the book. Does that make sense? Great question. And I know, listen, I'm no expert, and there are lots of smart people that disagree. The goal is to provoke curiosity so that instead of fear, the book provokes hope. And what's the hope from this? Are there any other questions before I, I punch into hope? Yes, sir. Yes, Peter. No, wait for it. We have online people. I see. I get it. I noticed, I noticed. 
<laughs> what was my question? Oh, um, I noticed in the chart it looked like there was no uh, firstborn killing. Yeah. Except at the beginning in Exodus, right? That yep. didn't seem to happen again. How does Jesus play into that? Was he the sort of first? Oh, you're smiling. Come on. Okay. That's my You question. just answered it. <laughs> yeah. We don't need, there, there, is no, there is no plague of the firstborn because one who took the place of that judgment and that salvation stands as the slain lamb in the book of Revelation and all who shelter under him are passed over in a similar way. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on. Look at this, the face of genius. Now, where is hope in this section? Where would you guess? What's that? The, yes, those who are sealed and can stand before God, right? Because they've taken shelter in the blood of the lamb. Absolutely. That's really good. Where else is hope in this? The white robes of the 144,000. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Good. What else? What? Say it louder. Yes, we're going to get to that. Overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, that's coming. Yes. Did you read that from somewhere? <laughs> exactly. Can you get a microphone in front of this beautiful young man? Where's the hope in this? That, that God is someone who... Um, confronts human evil and liberates his people from oppression and asserts his rule over creation. Boom! There's the hope in that. Thank you, yeah, clap for this man, yes. Sparse clapping, but clapping nevertheless. We, most of us, are not oppressed people. But imagine, historically, if you're African-American, if you're a woman, if you're Jew, Jewish, and a ima Jew, imagine if you're Jewish, Jew-ish. Or imagine if you're somebody in America that has been, been one of the historically poorly treated people groups or around the world suffering under some unjust form of government. Do these words hit differently than they hit us as middle class, relatively safe and comfortable Americans? Now, there is much oppression that happens in America. We'll talk about that. But for this audience, if you're like me, these words are uncomfortable rather than hopeful. Because the natural question we're gonna have is has America become or taken on parts of Babylon? No matter how great we think it is, are there unjust economic practices? Are there oppressive ways that we all call normal that actually run counter to the ways of the kingdom? <laughs> You're spoiling this, yes. And that doesn't mean we don't love America, we do. 
But it, it means because we love it and because we're people defined by the text, we are called to interrogate the assumptions of our surrounding culture and to ask what are the ways in which we participate in the unjust systems of the world. So that's where this sucker goes, and that's why it's so tempting to make it about what's gonna happen in the future, because that doesn't have a lot to do with us, right? But the hope, the hope is found that that person that abused you, that group that stood over you and oppressed you, the corporate greed that keeps many in poverty, that God isn't nonchalant about that stuff, How could God be loving and not deal with the amount of human blood that cries out from the earth after thousands of years of human history? This section, this is the birth pangs into new creation. This is what it takes to get us to the place where there's no more sin and no more tears and no more suffering. The truth about human life and us has to be told and the injustice has to be reckoned with. And so the hope comes from a God who's not indifferent to human evil and that has dealt with it and will deal with it in a final form. That's exactly right. So the question for us, quite naturally, at least me, I shouldn't speak for any of you, but me as somebody who is middle class, upper middle class, safe, secure, very comfortable in life with disposable income to buy meaningless technology products that get updated in two year, every two years, right? The question that Revelation poses to me isn't, hey, I'm gonna get back at my oppressors, but it's where have I joined the system that oppresses? That's a far different question. So hope is found in this space where God is gonna reckon with human evil like he always has. Embedded in evil are the seeds of its own destruction. And God ensures that the evil that human beings do to each other will be judged. And who can stand on that day? Only those who have taken the blood of the slain lamb and darken their doorposts, right? That's the picture. That there is a final and ultimate exodus coming. It has come, it is coming, and it will be coming. Where God will deal once and for all with human, not just individual evil, but structural evil. That's the thing nobody appreciates about Revelation. It's not just dealing with individual evil hearts, it's dealing with the way, the way in which nations organize to oppress people militarily and economically. And I know we don't like that language. I totally get it. But the reason we don't like it is because me, I've benefited from it. So, that'll preach. And, and you kind of have an idea of where this thing's going. All right, so we're gonna meet the beast and the dragon next week. We're gonna meet Babylon, who was a stand-in for Rome. Then we're gonna see the final day of the Lord when all of that is cast into a place of destruction called the lake of fire. 
And all of that is a prelude into new creation. Sound good? So today, what are we gonna do today? We're oddly enough gonna celebrate the blood of the slain lamb and taking the bread and the cup as we do every week. It's just odd to call it these things, right? I never want us to forget how odd the communion meal is. What do you guys do at church? Well, we believe that our savior was executed by a terrorist nation state called Rome and that we reenact his death <laughs> by taking red colored water and a piece of little bread to say this death somehow condemned all the corrupt evil in the world, liberated all who will call upon his name, and demonstrated the upside down, incredibly subversive wisdom of God Almighty who wins by losing, and who is victorious by suffering. And when we take the bread and the cup, we don't just take it as people who benefit from it, hallelujah that we do, we take it as people who are committed to that way of living here and now. Mm. You guys are awesome. Lord Jesus, man, thank you for the ways in which your word is living and active. And I pray that it would call out of me and my family the beauty of Jesus the compelling nature of his upside down victory and the ways in which I have accommodated myself to what's normal, but what turns out to be something very ugly, and very anti-Christ. And so Lord, we don't sit as some political partisan body, we sit as a, a group of people who are your students and who want to walk in the way of King Jesus. And so to that end, we take the bread and the cup, we sacrifice, we sing, we have our imaginations renewed. And so God, will receive us at your table, if you would, right now, in the name of Jesus, amen.